I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Brunico. And we're both just guys. <laughs> we're both just guys, just two guys hanging out with the podcast, but we're about to be joined by uh, a third person. Guy is such a weird word, eh? It's like gendered, but also not gendered sometimes. Uh, anyway, the third person who's coming on, a guy or not a guy, who could say, is Marika Rose, uh, a, a podcast fave. You know her, you love her. Uh, she, I think, still has the record of a guest who has maybe the the highest like listen rate out of all of our episodes on, on the whole. So a fan favorite. Uh, she's also the person responsible for the great quote that you just heard at the end of our intro about uh, being faithful to Christianity, betraying Christianity. Just a really uh, brilliant person. And we're glad to have her back on the show to talk about angels, a thing that Matt and I have been trying our best to uh, stumble through, maybe, uh, but to little effect. So we've got a real theologian on here to uh, help us out. Yeah, it's a really great conversation. Well, I don't know if the co- it's, I don't know if it's a good conversation, but it's extremely good content from Marika. I think it is amazing all of this stuff that she's bringing to the table, and uh, how angels are like really philosophical types of characters that make you think about the world in different ways. Um, anyways, a very enlightening interview from my end. I learned a lot of things about it. And I bet you will too. So buckle up and get ready to get angelic. <laughs> uh, before we get there, the, uh, the book that Marika is promoting is called Theology at the End of the World. She talks about angels in that book and lots of other things too. Don't worry, you'll hear about it again. We're definitely going to have Marika back to chat about it more fully later on. But if you're in the UK, you can pre-order it from SCM Press. And uh, if you're not in the UK, like Matt and I, uh, you can buy it on the 31st of July, right around the corner. And it's going to be good. Uh, Matt and I got a sneak peek at a chapter to do this episode. And man, I got to tell you, Marika, she's brilliant, as you're about to find out uh, if you don't know already. But also, she's just a really good writer. It's very fun. Um, there's a really nice balance between here's a bunch of weird stuff about theology that you've never heard of. And also, here's yeah. just what it's like to be a weird Christian. <laughs> like Here's like <laughs> the weird ideas that you have about yourself and the world around you articulated in a way that uh, even your youth pastor could understand. So uh, That's you true. should get it. The book is also like just very entertaining to read. Um, you know, when you think of theology, you don't think of like a good time, <laughs> not usually, <laughs> but this book is for sure. So, uh, get excited for it. 
Yeah, get it. Uh, Theology at the End of the World, SEM Press. And without further ado, let's turn it over to Marika. Marika, welcome back to the show. Longtime listeners will definitely remember you from a couple of episodes a few years back. I think uh, still probably some of our most popular episodes, which is pretty interesting. Uh, but for people who don't know, um, who are you? <laughs> Why should people be excited about your your forthcoming book, Theology for the End of the World? Yeah, so um, I'm Marika Rose. I am uh, normally a senior lecturer at the University of Winchester in philosophical theology. Um, I am currently not working for the University of Winchester because I'm also a member of the Universities and Colleges Union, which is the national um, UK higher education union um, we are currently in the middle of a national marking and assessment boycott over pay, uh, workload, uh, gender and racial pay gaps and precarity. Um, and my university uh, specifically has decided to take the most punitive response to that. So um, as long as I'm not doing my marking, they're deducting 100% of my pay. Um, so uh, if you, yeah, um, I thought I should kind of mention that. Um, and if people want to uh, support that uh action in any way um the ucu website which is ucu.org.uk um you can donate to our fighting fund and you can also there's a little tool that lets you email um vcs of universities to encourage them um either to uh, dock less of our pay or to pressure the kind of national university body to uh, meet our demands in a in a kind of significant way um so that's uh, what i'm normally doing and what i'm currently doing um i uh, think when i was last here i was talking about my first book um, which was a theology of failure, Chijek against Christian innocence. Um, that was a more kind of academic thing. Um, in July, I have a new book coming out um, called Theology for the End of the World. Um, basically, uh, the premise of the book is um, uh, what if we kind of, uh, instead of trying to desperately sort of cling on to uh, the things that we are afraid of losing in the middle of a society that feels like it's in kind of decline, uh, we both um, committed to trying to understand how we got here, how the world was made, what role Christianity um, played in that, and then also uh, thought about what it would mean to not um, try to desperately cling on to this world um, built as it is on violence and exploitation, but instead um, sided with the Christians uh, across history who have instead tried to end the world. Love it. Extremely cool, great energy, and what a great theme to be thinking about while you're also very mad at your employer. I think that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, we're excited to have you back on the show, and when the book is finally out, we're going to have to have you again, I think. Uh, we'll do a full, proper um, look at the whole thing. But we have an incredibly specific task for you, Marika, this week. Um, on the show, as we like to say, we are not theologians, and we, we do our best, but uh, whether it's good or not, who could say? So we've been talking about angels, and we thought we really should probably have somebody who knows a thing or two about angels on the show to set us straight or or not, <laughs> set us off in a better direction. Uh, maybe that's a better way to put it. And uh, we did this episode on Michelle Serre. We were talking about angels philosophically and the weird things that they mean and do and, and say. And you've done a lot of work about angels, including in this book, but also before that. So we're welcoming you here, Marika, as our uh, our correspondent to the celestial heavens, um, a person who knows a lot about angelic hierarchy and so on. Uh, tell us maybe a little bit about angels, the role they play, and uh, yeah, what? Wh why are you into them? What, what got you into angels? Yeah, so... Um... I mean, I guess what got me into angels was um, being interested in uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, who is, I think, more kind of commonly talked about um, as one of the kind of founders of mystical theology. 
um, 20th century philosophers get really into uh, using Dionysius to think about the limits of language. Um, but as he is kind of bringing together Christianity and Neoplatonism in this way that lets people think about language and being um, and desire, he is also in the process um, becoming one of the kind of first systematic angelologists. So uh, you have a bunch of different things about angels um, in the Bible and the kind of uh, early Christian uh, sort of um, literature um there's lots of scattered bits but it's not particularly systematic and so um early christians start to kind of try and figure out how to how to make a system out of um those bits and pieces and so dionysius um brings uh various biblical texts together and comes up with a uh, nine category ranking system for the angels um that kind of sets the term for a lot of um, later christian angelology um, and just after I finished my PhD writing about Dionysius, um, I did a postdoc where I was um, encouraged to think about theology and digital technologies. And um, I basically uh, read um, Donna Haraway's Manifesto for Cyborgs, which is one of the kind of key texts in sort of uh, feminist science studies. Um, and she articulates the cyborg as a kind of figure of a kind of hybrid human being. So part organic, part technology. Um, cyborgs as these kind of limit figures. Um, as these kind of perfected workers, yet also these workers who go wrong in various ways with glitches. Um, and I was just really struck by the similarities between the way that Haraway was talking about the cyborg um, and the way that Dionysius talked about angels. So that was the kind of starting point, but it's ballooned into this more general uh, interest in angels. Um, I was thinking as you were talking, um, I teach a course at the moment um, at, uh, about angels in medieval thought. Um, the syllabus is available on um, Anand Fazik, the blog I sometimes write for. So if anyone wants to go and uh, really dig into medieval angelology, there's lots of suggestions there. That's great. I mean, uh, we can talk more about the cyborgs maybe in a minute, but let's let's start with the medieval and work our way forward really quick here. So uh, the, the quintessential medieval question about angels is how many can fit on the head of a pin? And I'm so excited for you to tell me, a real theologian, finally getting to the bottom of this question. Um, so this is a, a, an interesting question, and I think I think I'm correct in saying it's a question that people didn't actually specifically ask in the medieval period, but it does point to one of the ways that angels are really important in medieval thought. Um, one of the things I would suggest is that um, angels function as kind of speculative figures, right? We uh, even if even if we have Christians who will claim to have seen and encountered angels, um, they are not present to us in ways that let us kind of really study them. So what angels often let theologians do is to ask a bunch of questions, uh, kind of like thought experiments. If we stripped away a lot of the um, complicating factors that makes asking questions about human being uh, difficult and messy, um, and we just really kind of boiled it down to the, the purest form, how then would we think about questions like what free will is, um, how we know things, um, uh, and uh, particularly when it comes to the questions of um, angels and the head of a pin, questions about the nature of place. Um, and so angels, um, uh, one of the things I, I would suggest, and I, I think I like mean this at least 50%, is that angels, um, angelology is partly the reason why modern science emerges. So um, one of the things that happens sort of in the mid, mid to late medieval period is um, as uh, Al-Andalus um, uh, Muslim uh, Spain starts to kind of fragment um, a lot of um, knowledge that has been uh, kept within the um, Arabic speaking world, but lost to the Latin speaking world, starts to make its way um, into the Latin speaking West. And um, some of that is some texts of Aristotle, um, which uh, people haven't read. Um, as universities start to get where get, start to get going in medieval Europe, 
and these newly discovered texts by Aristotle um, uh, become this kind of focus for um, theological, philosophical and scientific speculation. Um, so Aquinas is one of the first people to really kind of try and bring these new um, texts by Aristotle together with existing theological knowledge. And then in part because uh, uh, Jewish and um, Muslim thinkers are so important to the, tra the, the translation and the interpretation of Aristotle, there's a backlash within the Christian West. Um, there's a council which um, produces a, a set of statements that are ruled heretical, um, including a lot about angelology. Um, and then theologians have to go back to the drawing board and go, how do we think about angels without using these Aristotelian categories? Um, and maybe that's why uh, we start to get modern science. Uh, we lose this kind of Aristotelian uh, framework. If we're talking about angels on the head of the pin, um, the really key uh, thing is Aristotle's definition of a place. So for Aristotle, um, a thing's place is um, the innermost boundary of a thing which contains it. So basically, if we could kind of trace around the outline of your body, um, that would be your place. And what's important about that is um, your place is not just the dimensions, like how wide you are, how tall you are, how deep you are. It's also where you are located in relation to everything else. So we can't think a thing's dimensions without also thinking it um, in relation to the things around it. Um, and uh, so that both means that everything is always located in relation in, in relation to other things. Um, and uh, it also means that things have a proper place. So it's not just that you exist always in relation, but that actually you should exist in particular kinds of relations. So stones, a stone's proper place is on the ground. If you throw it in the air, it will eventually return to its proper, proper place on the ground. So um, one of the things that that means is that um, an object uh, always takes up volume. You can't just imagine an object kind of existing in blank space. Um, and uh, one of the questions then you get for angelology is if angels are beings um, who have bodies, how can they be in a particular place? And um, one way of doing that would be to say, well, if an angel doesn't have a body, it's just everywhere. Um, but then the problem is, how do we distinguish angels from God? So angels have to be limited in some way, but they're not limited by embodiment in the same way that human beings are. Um, and so um, Aquinas's solution is basically to say that. Um, so again, this is Aristotelian causation. Um, a, a, a cause has to be present to its effect. So for an angel to interact with the world, it has to be present to the things that it's interacting with. So an angel is present for Aquinas, basically, wherever it is acting. Um, so if an angel decides that it's going to come and whisper encouraging words into your ear or um, appear to you in a vision to inspire you, it is present to you as it is having an effect on you. So that gives um, Aquinas a way of thinking about um, location and causation uh, and, and presence um, kind of without um, embodiment. Um, as we move sort of to the later medieval period, post Aquinas, post the condemnations, um, we start to get slightly different accounts um, of angelic location um, because they are sort of starting to let go of these Aristotelian categories. Um, and so we get um, people like, um, I always get Scotus and Occam mixed up. So, so for Scotus, uh, he starts to imagine that uh, you can have dimension without um, location. So, so in Scotus, we start to find something like, I think the more kind of more classical modern way of thinking about things, right? You imagine an object. And I think for a lot of, I certainly find a lot of the time I'm kind of essentially imagining it. You know how you get those um, graphic uh, graphics of like how you kind of map a model in computer space. So just surrounded by blank space. So for Scotus, uh, uh, embodiment uh, kind of being no longer has a necessary connection to uh, uh, other things. So you can imagine an angel existing without being in relation to other things in the world. Um, again, this is kind of really important for kind of 
modern uh, mathematical understandings of the world, modern scientific understandings of the world. You see it in the kind of different uh, types of maps you get over the late medieval period. So a move away from uh, uh, the sort of less uh, mathematical maps where you're showing basically where things are in relation to you um, to kind of imagining things from this God's eye perspective. Um, and um, so for Scotus, uh, angels, um, their size is kind of determined by the area in which they're acting. So they can be infinitely small or they can be, uh, well, not infinitely small. They can be almost infinitely small or they can be almost infinitely big. Um, they can be kind of uh, any size or uh, dimension. They just can't be as big um, as God and they can't kind of disappear entirely. So sort of within that bounds, uh, they move around. So, um, and I think for both of them, the answer is really that an, an angel's, uh, location in a place is not competitive with other things. So if lots of angels were trying to act on one pin, um, they could all be on that one pin. Uh, lots of angels, uh, angels could become so infinitely small that you could fit kind of almost uh, infinite numbers of them, but not quite infinite numbers of them onto the head of a pin um, for SCOTUS. Um, I guess the other part of that is that angels and demons do sometimes assume bodies for the purposes of interacting with people. Um, so, uh, for example, um, incubi and succubi, who are fallen angels who um, steal sperm from men um, in order to impregnate women, they make bodies for themselves for Aquinas and the Malleus Maleficarum, the medieval witch hunting manual, um, out of sometimes compressed air, sometimes kind of earth. So they can kind of take on bodies for particular functions, in which case um, you probably would struggle to fit even a single angel onto the head of a pin. <laughs> I love this so much because I'm, I'm getting this picture of like Paul Rudd as Ant-Man and he's like shrinking down. This very angelic Paul Rudd. I love this though because they're using angels in this like extremely philosophical way to answer, you know, high level metaphysical questions. Whereas in evangelical Christianity and like, you know, the 21st century, um, angels are mostly just like Bigfoot. They're like cryptids that, you know, kind of come around and appear to you. Anyways, this is far more interesting than any of that. I'm all about this. Yeah, I'm glad we asked. You know, when we made the the question, we thought it was maybe a silly question, but it's not. Um, as we've learned, theology, yeah, the the uh, the line between silly and serious is so blurry. And uh, I appreciate you bringing us into it. Um, we have some other questions, but I want to come back to, all right, the big list of things you're not supposed to say about angels. I'm suddenly very interested. A thing that I've never known about until two minutes ago. Um, what are some naughty ways to think about angels? Ways you're not supposed to do it? Um, like, what is the church sort of concerned about sorting out those categories? Or, you know, maybe you don't know off the top of your head. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm asking an unfair question to a theologian. But, <laughs> like, what might be, if I was thinking about angels and I got on a certain path, what might be the point where it's like, don't think about them that way, though. That's a bad way to think about it. Yeah, well, um, so the, the the condemnations that kind of prompt uh, the sort of disappearance of, of or sort of the, the backlash against Aristotelian theology are the 1277 um, condemnations, um, and they list a bunch of different things. Um, one of the ideas, I, I can't remember in detail all of the ideas they condemn, one of the ideas that they condemn um, is an idea, um, so um, for... Um, Aristotle, um, the you can you, we can think of the world as this kind of nested set of spheres, and so stars and planets are kind of in these celestial spheres. So um, the world is a kind of uh, yeah nested uh, spheres, um, and when stars rotate around the Earth, um, it's because these celestial spheres are turning. Um, what we find in Maimonides, uh, medieval Jewish Aristotelian, um, is that he argues that. Um, the celestial spheres, um, which Aristotle describes as separate intelligences, are the angels. Um, and uh, 
some of the reasoning is, uh, I love it. And um, he basically says, so we see that, um, you know, uh, you or I or a cat or a dog kind of run around the earth and there's no particular obvious pattern to the way that we move around. And um, if we look at the movement of the stars and the planets, we see that that movement is much more regular. It's much more mathematical. It's much more perfect. Um, and one of the ideas that you find at least as far back as Dionysius is that um, basically the, the, the further you get up the created hierarchy, the, the further you get to the seraphim, who are the angels right at the top, and the seraphim basically go around God um, in perfect circles eternally singing, holy, holy, holy. Um, and Maimonides' argument is, well, you know, uh, uh, if, if I were more perfectly rational, uh, I might not just move around kind of zigzagging all over the place. I would probably move in a much more rational way, therefore in a straight line or in a perfect circle. And so it's reasonable to infer that the stars and the planets are intelligent because they're moving in perfect circles. Um, and so it's therefore also reasonable to infer that um, uh, the celestial intelligences that Aristotle talks about are the same as the angels that the Bible talks about. Um, but you're not allowed to say that after 1277. Um, uh, that, that's that's deemed to be heretical. Um, and it's kind of interesting, actually, because, you know, that, that kind of argument by Maimonides, it sounds so much like um, a lot of the kind of arguments you get about kind of how we can kind of reconcile uh, faith and the Bible. But 1277, they're like, no, we don't like this, um, I think, because it sounds a bit Jewish or a bit um, Muslim. Um, there's a few other things. Um, I mean, one of the big problems that people grapple with um, is how do we make sure that we are talking about angels who have to be distinct from human beings, um, but they also have to be distinct from God. So, and that causes all sorts of problems for the way that Christians think about angels, um, because um, you have to try and imagine these beings who are somehow more perfect than us and still also less perfect than God. So trying to think about a way that they can be limited, but not in the same way that human beings are limited, um, sets a lot of the terms. One of the things I think is really interesting in uh, kind of contemporary pop culture depictions of the angels um, is that uh, where for medieval people, there's this real sense that um, for human beings, and you get this really early on in Christianity, if we were more perfect, we would be more like the angels. The angels live lives that are less determined by um, kind of change and decay and need. Um, they don't get hungry. They don't get tired. Um, they don't, they're not uh, kind of flawed in the same way that we are. So the more perfect we become, um, the more we will become like the angels. Um, whereas what you get in a lot of uh, pop culture depictions of angels in the 20th century is actually the sense that the angels are jealous of us precisely because of the things that they don't have because they can fall in love uh, because they can taste food uh, but we can we can fall in love we can taste food we get hungry and tired and um, so I think that you see a real kind of reversal in what we see as being most valuable about human life um, and move away from uh, the desire to kind of escape hunger thirst sleepiness all of these things into a sense that actually that's what makes human life uh, good and worth living and enviable um and I mean what's interesting about that actually is that uh in some ways that kind of popular angelology uh fits more closely with um uh certain bits of um uh, Muslim angelology so um Ibn Arabi um argues that um in contrast to the angels humans are more kind of complete because we bring together every different aspect um of life and existence we are bodies and we are also minds so we're kind of right at the center of all the different things that make up the world so while angels might be more perfect than us in some ways and um, not least because um in islam angels can't um aren't, aren't can't sin uh they're also less perfect than us in some ways precisely because they don't have that kind of richness of of kind of 
being that we have. Wild. Yeah, it is super wild. Um, it's also great to know uh, what I can't say about angels. So the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this ancient, this ancient sure council. Make sure you take the 1277 condemnations carefully before you make any public angel statements. <laughs> <laughs> really important. I don't want to get canceled for this. Um, <laughs> um, the the popular culture note is so interesting to me about uh, angels and perfection and how we, some people work that out. I think that's really fascinating. The popular angelology. I love it. Um, something else that you mention in your book, Theology for the End of the World, is that uh, there's another representation of angels, too, as um, maybe, uh, I mean, not just this, like, longing to be human, but also as, like, the grand cosmic functionaries who are, like, walking around with clipboards and, like, huge nerds who are keeping the the cosmos running. What What's going on with that part? Like, how, is that just, like, um, you know, an artifact of capitalism and thinking through perfection or something else? What What about that part of popular culture? So I actually think that's, uh, it's a bit to do with Dionysius and it's a bit to do with gender. Um, so uh, the the, Agamben, the argument that Agamben makes, um, the Giorgio Agamben, the Italian philosopher, um, is he argues that what we find in Dionysius, so Dionysius creates these ranks of angels, um, and he also with that creates the notion of hierarchy. So hierarchy kind of comes from sacred power. Um, and basically, uh, the idea is that creation exists as this kind of emanation of light, um, of power from God, um, and the kind of uh, the further away you get from God, the less of God's light, the less of God's power there is. Um, and the hierarchy of the angels, like the hierarchy of the church, um, exists basically to kind of receive illumination from God and then to kind of pass it on down the chain. So uh, the the holiest angels at the top are closest to God, um, and they kind of see God grasp God and then kind of pass that illumination down the chain um, and so uh, the ranks of the angels um, like the ranks of the church are kind of arranged in this hierarchy um, and Agamben argues that this hierarchy is basically a bureaucracy um, and that actually if we look at the history of angelology in the west and we look at the history of um, ideas of government we find that angelology and bureaucracy evolve in tandem with one another so um, how people think that God uses the angels to manage the world, uh, shapes how they think we should organize uh, government, either of the state or of the church. But also uh, when we try to imagine what the angels are like, we look at the government of um, the state, uh, we look at the government of the church and we kind of map that back onto the angels. Um, and so for Agamben, there's this kind of dual bureaucratic function. Um, one is management. So the angels basically manage the world on God's behalf. Um, and the other is glory, which I think is the kind of theological equivalent of taxes. So uh, they gather up worship, they gather up tribute, and they kind of pass that back up the chain. Um, so really kind of until around the Reformation, angels play this really important political theological role. They help us to think about government and they help us to think about power. Um, what happens, I think, with uh, around the Reformation, um, with the emergence of capitalism, with the division of the world into the public uh, masculine sphere of government and the private feminized uh, sphere of uh, the home um, is that I think we see a shift in the role that religion plays. Um, and I'd argue that as we get this kind of separation between productive labor and reproductive labor, um, religion, like other forms of reproductive labor, like housework, like childcare, um, uh, like a kind of moral education of children, starts to become associated with women, starts to become associated with the home. And what we see over the kind of late medieval, early modern period is that increasingly angels are depicted less and less as these kind of masculine androgynous figures. And they're more and more depicted as women and depicted as children um, and associated with people's private and um, religious emotional life. Um, and so what you tend to see in uh, uh, 20th century films, at least, 
um, I've been working on a chapter about uh, uh, angels in 20th century film is that um, angels, basically their function is to ensure social reproduction. So they're kind of bureaucrats of love, maybe. <laughs> they show up when <laughs> marriages are in crises, when, uh, when people are, are so busy working that they don't have time to fall in love. Uh, when uh, children are dealing with dads who've abandoned them, um, when people are married, but their marriage is under strain. Um, that's when these angels appear, often as these kind of uh, bureaucratic figures holding clipboards, um, and they intervene basically to kind of help people fall in love, help children reunite with their parents, um, ensure the kind of continuation of the family in whatever form is necessary at that stage of capitalism. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, Bureaucrats of Love in the 20th Century is the name of my new incredibly weird uh, album um, out this fall. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting the way that you talk about the roles angels play socially, and they they kind of, they're these managerial characters. Um, and then also, though, you mentioned that they sort of like... There's like a kind of excess or weirdness that happens with angels sometimes too. And Matt and I have been talking about St. Francis a lot on this podcast lately. And, you know, Francis is also, he's like called a, a, an angel of the apocalypse by certain brands of uh, really wild Franciscans. And you have the the seraphim as these kind of like incredibly radical, like burning figures of, you know, the end of the world. So uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit about that too. Like they're they're managing the world, but also they're these kind of like, signs of of doom or the destruction of the world or a new kind of order so what's going on there how are angels also maybe subverting the hierarchy that's set up here i guess i would want to kind of tie that into the sort of like gnostic apocalyptic strand of christianity that uh, tends to not predominate um but yeah i mean there is um i mean i think the the there are some kind of interesting relationships between the figure of the angel and the figure of the eunuch um, particularly kind of earlier on, but um, and, and also the figure of the monk. Um, and I think actually what all of those figures have in common is there's a sense in which the kind of uh, the kind of institutions and um, the kind of lives um, that are lived by angels, by eunuchs, by monks are kind of seen as actually disconnected in some really important ways from reproduction. Um, so, uh, you know, you uh, uh, particularly, you know, when you get the spiritual Franciscans, you get this insistence on absolute poverty, dispossession. Um, and that kind of goes with 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 celibacy, because what celibacy does, right, is it is it cuts you off from responsibility for caring for people, for worrying about your family. Um, you know, if you're not worried about your family, you can kind of dedicate yourself to a life of revolution or um, whatever. And so um, that 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 possibility, I think, shows up. Um, it doesn't show up. Uh, so in the films I've been watching, it's it's kind of rare. But I think often when you get like really good art that depicts angels, um, you find something like that. So um, two examples that spring to mind um, are Pasolini's Teorema. Um, so and that's set um, in uh, Italy in the, the 1960s. And it's very explicitly set in the middle of um, uh, the kind of opening scenes are a, a, a factory owner and there are kind of strikes happening at the factory um, and this small boy called Angelus brings a note uh, announcing the arrival of this kind of messianic figure and basically the messianic figure arrives and just totally destroys the lives of each member of the family um, and so you get that kind of yeah the, the angel is kind of announcing this break or this rupture um, I think another really ex interesting example um, and this isn't TV is um, Angels in America um, so the Tony Kushner play that was also an HBO series. Um, and there you get these angels appearing as these kind of apocalyptic figures. Um, and that is to do with kind of the AIDS crisis and uh, the way that both, I think that the, the AIDS crisis 
poses a kind of existential threat to uh, the, the reproduction of uh, queer lives, but I think also the possibility that actually what's happening there could pose a more radical challenge to the existing order of things. And um, what's interesting in Angels in America is that it turns out it's it's not that angels envy the human condition, but basically God has gotten sick of kind of timelessness and changelessness and has kind of entered into the world. So I think you do get these moments where you kind of glimpse this more radical possibility. Um, I think uh, because I've mostly been watching like Hollywood films that that doesn't show up as often. Um, it, it, it occurs more in, yeah, the kind of art films or in kind of uh, Benjamin's figure of the angel of history, sort of just watching catastrophe piling up. Um, and what's interesting about kind of Benjamin's revolutionary politics is precisely it, it can't be about reproduction. It can't be about, um, you know, we do these things now because we hope that this will produce things in the future. It has to be like, what does it look like for for the Messiah to arrive right now in this moment with no kind of expectation or promise of what will come next. Love it. And uh, let's see. All right. We're going to get more to your book in one second, but I do have one last uh, completely arbitrary question for you. So, all right, Dionysius, he made this great um, BuzzFeed listicle about the nine different kinds of angels or uh, classes of angels you can like. Um, there's lots of other important angels that kind of take on singular identities or lives in the Christian tradition. Michael and Raphael are like in the Catholic Mass. Pope Francis decided we should all say this really wild prayer to St. Michael at the end. And it's very funny, like adding some weirdness back in. Uh, St. Michael's out there protecting us from demons and devils and all the rest of it. So uh, I have to ask you, Marika, who is your favorite an angel? Who's the best angel in history? You can't say Walter Benjamin's. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that's interesting about angels is that they aren't named and one of the things that's interesting about the the way that they aren't named is that one of the problems that medieval angelologists grapple with is like what is the relationship with of angels to one another um, and I'm actually just going to evade this question and suggest that uh, you should either keep an eye out for or uh, invite Sean Capener to come and talk on your podcast, because he has some really interesting arguments about um, one of the arguments that some medieval thinkers make is that each angel is a kind of species in itself. So actually, the angels are radically disconnected from uh, relations to other angels in ways that human beings are not. Um, and that if we uh, pay attention to the way that that plays out in Anselm's angelology, we can learn some things about um, racial slavery and also about debt. Um, I, uh, I mean, I can only really think of two angels that, that I know anything about that, that have names who are Michael, who's the kind of uh, warrior angel, um, and Gabriel, who's the, the angel who gets associated with um, women in the home. Um, and I'm actually just going to say that both of them are bad. War, uh, <laughs> war uh, leading the nation state to battle, bad. Uh, the angel of the home, um, also bad. Fair enough. There's got to be some other ones out there that are doing good things. Uh, just yet to yet to discover them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think you can kind of dig into the apocrypha. Uh, you get to your metatrons and those ones, but it's a little <laughs> bit outside my remit at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah. My favorite transformer. I really like the angels in the the recent Noah film. Um, who are these kind of fallen angels? And they like fall to earth and get covered in mud, and then are like big kind of transformer creatures. Um, it's yeah. The, the kind of standard Christian account of the, the creation of the angels uh, is comes to be Augustine. So uh, Augustine's like, oh, it happens like when God divides between light and darkness, that's when Satan falls and that's when the angels are. But the more fun one is that it's the Genesis story about the, the children of God who saw uh, the, the daughters of men and uh, came and, and had sex with them and produced the heroes. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's that's definitely the, the kind of more fun origin story, I think. <laughs> that's true. The ancient Avengers. 
Um, well, let's talk about your book a little bit because I think it's really fascinating and definitely want people to know about it before it comes out so they can uh, they can put it on their their book wish list or whatever people do with books. I don't know. Um, in in the in so you sent us this chapter beforehand to kind of take a look at in the theology for the end of the world book and uh, this this chapter on angels I think is really fascinating and in that chapter you draw angels as these like aspirational characters who don't have to worry about human stuff like sex or work and can focus on you know fixing the world in the soteriological sense or or something um, but in the end you you conclude that this is like the wrong way to think altogether and instead uh, thinking about Christianity as doing a type of work uh, to save the world is just like uh, kind of a complicated idea that you argue that uh, like the world is useless to God, which is a very fun turn of phrase uh, that I think like um, probably would, would ruffle the feathers of many Christians, but in a good way. So, so talk us through this whole thing, help us connect the dots here. Um, how is the world useless? What does all of that mean? And uh, why are you right? Yeah, well, so one of the kind of uh, difficult to answer questions in Christian theology is um, what was God doing uh, before God made the world? Um, and um, Agamben, when he's talking about the angels, he's basically like, uh, theologians are very embarrassed by this question. Um, and you can tell that they're embarrassed because they say things like um, Augustine, uh, in response to the question, what was God doing before God made the world? He's like, um, he was preparing hell for people who pry too deep. Um, and then uh, later on, uh, Luther, in response to the same question, says, oh, God was sitting in the forest um, carving sticks to beat people who ask questions they shouldn't be asking. Um, so uh, basically, it's it's difficult to answer the question. Um, uh, and uh, the reason it's difficult to answer the question is um, by the time that Christian theology kind of comes to, de de to depend on kind of Neoplatonic understandings of God, um, what you get is this idea of a God who is perfect and um, in order and that that understanding of perfection is that God cannot cannot change. And um, because if God was changing, God would either be getting better, in which case that suggests that God wasn't perfect to start with, or God would be getting worse, in which case, even if God started perfect, God isn't perfect now. So God can't change. Um, God also can't need anything, because if God needed something, then that would mean that God was dependent on something that, that wasn't God. Um, and so basically, you can't, in this kind of classical theological framework, say that God had any reason at all for creating. It can't be that God was bored. It can't be that God was lonely. Um, it can't be that God needed something from creation that God didn't need. Um, it can't even be, it can't be that God had to create, because if God had to create, then God is bound by some necessity outside of God's self. So basically the the kind of the proper theological answer to the question, why did God create the world is for no reason. There was no reason. We can't explain it. Um, it's a mystery. Uh, you can kind of fancy it up by saying, oh, just out of the excess of God's love. But that still is just saying we don't know. Uh, you can be like, oh, God just overflowed, but God didn't have to overflow. So really, the answer is nothing. Um, and partly what Agamben argues is that this whole kind of complex bureaucracy of heaven, all these angels like circling round and round going, holy, holy, um, are really just to kind of distract us from the fact that we don't know what happened uh, before all of that stuff comes into being and we would rather not think about it um, and one thing another thing that's interesting is that 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 embarrassing question why did God create the world is basically the same as the problem of why did the devil fall so one of the the kind of functions of angels um, I think you've had Adam Cox go on to talk about this before but is one of the things that, that the idea of angels do for Christian theology is let um, theologians explore this question of freedom um, and so God created 
the angels and um, the angels uh, knew God and um, they were created so that they had everything they could possibly need to be happy. And so the question of why they fell um, is really difficult to articulate. And ultimately, the answer is the same for no reason, nothing. Um, and I think one of the things that tends to happen in Christian theology is once you once you say, well, once creation happened, then you had a fall, that gives you a whole bunch of stuff to do, right? Things have gone wrong and we have to fix them. Um, but that prior question, well, why did things come into being in the first place, um, means that we can't just get stuck in this logic of kind of utility, that if God created the world and the fall wasn't necessary, we ultimately have to say that there is no reason for the world to exist. It's just pure excess or pure lack, uh, maybe both of them at the same time, if you want to be like Lacanian about it. Um, so uh, fundamentally, the purpose of life is not to solve the problems that were caused by sin. Fundamentally, the purpose of life is there is no purpose, uh, kind of joy, excess, uh, no reason at all, uh, insert your own answer here. Um, and I think that uh, one of the things that happens both in Christianity and actually in uh, left politics insofar as it um, comes out of Christian ways of thinking is um, it gets really caught up in this logic of things have gone wrong and we have to fix them. And that doesn't actually fundamentally answer the question of why are we trying to fix things in the first place? Um, uh, and again, this kind of uh, fits with kind of Benjamin's idea of, of the angel of history, that, that one of the things that Benjamin is trying to say is, as long as we think that things exist for a purpose, we are um, constantly uh, willing to sacrifice anything and everyone um, as long as this purpose is achieved. Um, you can do all sorts of terrible things to people if you think that in the process of making them suffer, they may eventually accept Jesus into their hearts and be saved from eternal damnation in hell. You can do uh, unimaginable violence if you think that, um, you know, ultimately this violence is in service of the arrival of communism. So when we have this view of history that it's about overcoming, uh, making right what's wrong, fixing things, and we can justify doing all kinds of terrible things in the name of this kind of ultimate goal. But if we start to say that actually there is no ultimate goal except uh, nothing, joy, fill in your own answer here, then we have to think a little bit differently about um, how, how we see people around us, how we relate to the world. Um, and we have to actually move a bit away from uh, a kind of instrumental reason. Um, and I think that that is potentially useful as a way of thinking about like how do we how do we engage with the world around us um, in a way that isn't isn't kind of instrumental and isn't willing to kind of sacrifice people on the altar of history. This is such a I think a really interesting idea and also a very difficult idea, but I'm committed to to thinking about it some more here. I think what's 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 so cool about it is that it does paint God as like and like some kind of like weird existentialist is how I feel like, you know, it's just like, I don't know, existence is absurd in the first place. So I guess I'm going to do something with it, which is very funny. I love God as this, uh, this big French guy smoking a cigarette in the sky. Um, a yet unrealized idea of God, about God for me. Um, I guess I always, I was also thinking too about, uh, the second creation story in Genesis where it just, you know, it's affirming that just existence is good, that stuff is good. And that's kind of it. And uh, I don't know, a challenging thought, but I really like it. Um, I really like the idea that uh, <laughs> we don't know why we're here, but we are here. And uh, that's cool, yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, and I think it comes in as well to questions about work, right? Like, what is the point of work? Um, it's really easy to get a, get kind of caught up with all of these ideas about like work achieves something or, you know, if we work hard, we'll build this new society or um, all of these kinds of things. Um, and 
uh, I think what that that precludes is the kind of radical po political possibilities of idleness. What if like work just sucks, uh, or yeah, or sometimes we work and it's not for any particular reason. I love it. Uh, as a person whose brain is permanently broken by both Christianity and left politics, and I'm constantly running around trying to save the world to very little effect, uh, I find that very useful to me specifically. Um, talk to us too a little bit about angels in relation to that, because that whole bit about work and uh, how work is so important and integral to uh, capitalism is a, a central feature of that that essay we mentioned earlier that you wrote um, when you were thinking about Donna Haraway and cyborgs and angels, um, all extremely fun things to put in a big soup that turns out to be a great essay. Um, what are maybe angels sort of telling us about capitalism and the nature of work? And like, what are we supposed to do with these guys, Monica? It seems like they're like, you know, they're running around and telling us to work all the time. And are we supposed to be like, get out of here? You know, I, I don't want these angels around. Are we supposed to become cyborgs? Uh, what, what are we supposed to be? Can we just be regular people? What's the deal here? The way that angels function as this kind of image of government is really tied to the way that they also are figures of technology. Um, and this kind of ties in, I think, to the the, the Michelle Serre book you were talking about last week. Um, and um, the, um, so Marx's definition of a machine is that you have a, you have a power source, you have a transmitting mechanism, and then you have the things that actually do the work. Um, and one of the things I argue in that article is like, that's what angels are. So God is the kind of origin, the role of the angels in the, the, the role of hierarchy is precisely to transmit the, the power, the illumination of God down to earth. And then we do these things. Um, and, um, the, uh, philosopher of technology, Lewis Mumford, um, uh, argues that the first the first ever mega machine uh, in human history is the 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 kind of complex social organization that built the pyramids. And obviously, that complex social organization that built the pyramids relied very heavily on lots of people doing work, uh, including enslaved uh, people. But it also relied on the technology of writing, he says. And the thing about writing is it lets you communicate a message without that message being corrupted, without it being changed. Um, and again, one of the things that angels kind of figure is uh, the things that humans would do if we uh, if we weren't kind of uh, limited by um, physicality, right? Angels aren't going to forget the message that God made them in the same way that a paper isn't going to um, like lose a bit of the message unless, you know, the paper decays or whatever. So, so there's a sense in which this kind of certain forms of social organization are made possible by, um, and in certain ways may be produced by particular kinds of technologies. So there's, there's this real kind of entanglement. Um, and I guess, you know, Marx's arg argument about the difference between a tool and a machine is uh, a tool is kind of in the control of uh, uh, human beings. Like you decide when you're going to start hammering and when you're going to stop. Um, but when it's a machine, we're constantly trying to kind of keep up with the machine to work at the pace of the machine. Uh, the machi machines don't tire like we do. Uh, they don't need sleep at night. Um, and so, uh, I mean, you could you could make a kind of Luddite argument about what the angels figure, right? These kind of huge systems of capitalism, of a kind of factory production of uh, the internet that is uh, made of people, but also made of the kind of technologies that allow um, communication and kind of perfect transmission to happen. Uh, well, I mean, it's never really perfect, is it? But, you know, the, the more kind of faster, more perfect um, forms of transmission. So we are kind of caught in this big machine. Um, and then I guess the question is what we do about that. Um, and I think um, 
this is kind of where I think we see a similarity between the angels and the figure of the cyborg, right? So in the same way that uh, the angels both represent what we think human beings would be like if we were more perfect. So you look at the kind of conversations that Christians are having about angels in any particular historical period, and you'll learn some things about what they think are the, the real problems with human nature and what we should be kind of struggling against to overcome. But they also become the kind of the figure of the perfect rebel. So the fallen angels are the demons and therefore these kind of figures of absolute rebellion. Um, and it's similar with with the kind of figure of the cyborg, right? We both see these kind of pop culture depictions of cyborgs as perfected humans. I think you can track some really interesting shifts, um, both around like what the kind of ideal work it is, and also in terms of where technological development is happening. So like mid 20th century science fiction, uh, you get a lot of really kind of rational robots or computers, um, and uh, uh, they're sort of just trying to trying to figure out how to be more rational than we are. And um, what I feel like you've started to get um, in the 21st century is um, more depictions of um, the attempts to kind of automate uh, emotional intelligence. So you start to get these, uh, you know, like in her or um, ex machina, you get these kind of feminized artificial intelligences um, that uh, where the kind of test of the test of uh, whether you kind of are conscious um, is not whether you're more rational than humans, but actually whether you're more able to be kind of uh, uh, either more able to fall in love or more able to convince other people that you've fallen in love. So there's some kind of complicated stuff going on there. So I think in both angels and humans, uh, in both angels and cyborgs, you see people kind of trying to figure out like, well, what would human beings be like if we went wrong? And um, also, um, what is the kind of idea of the kind of bad version of ourselves that we're defining ourselves against? Um, so there's a bunch of stuff going on there around kind of race and gender and those kinds of things as well. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, too. You know, there's this uh, interview somewhere with uh, Paul Virilio where they're asking him about Donna Haraway. And uh, he says, you know, something like, I forget exactly what the question is, something about Someone asked Donna Haraway, would you rather be a goddess or a cyborg? And she says, I'd rather be a cyborg. Very funny, great rhetoric. Um, and they're like, really? What do you want to be, uh, a god or, or a machine or what? And he's like, I don't know. I just want to be, like, a guy. Like, can I just be a human? <laughs> and I, like, really appreciate that response. But also, it is kind of like, you know, it's a bit of a conservative response. Because it's like, well, being a human is actually really weird and complicated. And, you know, in all these ways that Donna Haraway, but also theologians seem to to talk about and... It seems like angels and cyborgs, they're these kind of, uh, you know, as we've been talking about, these these thought experiments, you know, they open up these other ways of speculating about ourselves. So what is it about thinking about angels or cyborgs that maybe helps us reflect, too, on, on what it means to be a person? How can we keep thinking about angels in the, the 21st century? Yeah, and I mean, I think that, <laughs> what does it mean just to be a guy, right? Like, you have to have centuries <laughs> and centuries of... Uh, like sociological, economic, technological developments that produce this idea that you can be just a guy, like just a just an object floating in space without relation, right? Like this is one of the products of the modern world, this idea of, uh, yeah, things that have like dimension but no location, uh, this idea that uh, you can exist and not be part of this like massive machinery of creation. And I think that, um, I think it's easy to sort of, and I think I maybe do this a bit, to be honest, in the in the, the Angels and Cyborgs article to say, you know, we're part of this big machine, maybe we should smash the machine. But I think the the kind of the other side of that is to be human is always to be deeply caught up in these like complicated webs and tangles of causation and dependence. 
um, that actually a lot of what we are is not kind of located within us and um, who we are is who we are in relation to the world around us that you know the the idea that I decide when to move this this kind of tool is maybe also always also a kind of fantasy of self-possession um, and so I think if we want to kind of imagine moving beyond a model of the self that relies on kind of ideas of private property that relies on this idea that to be free is, is not to be a, a slave then actually we sort of have to have a more complicated way of grappling with um the the question of kind of freedom and dependence yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think again is a, is a really challenging idea but i think it's um that particular question about technology always seems really worth pursuing to me as uh, especially as i don't know things I don't want to say things get more technological because that's not necessarily true. Things have always been technological, but I think as the the fantasy about humans and technology kind of grows in a particular direction, I think it's always great to sort of reaffirm our co-determination in the world with stuff. We'll never just be guys, unfortunately. <laughs> we can we can strive we can strive towards being guys, but we'll never just be them. Um, yeah, Marika, thanks so much for jumping on the pod with us, though, and talking through angels and uh, enduring the silly questions that we came up with. Uh, deeply appreciate it. And uh, do you want to tell people when your book will be out and where they can find it? It is. Yeah. So it's out on the 31st of July. If you are in the UK, you can um, pre-order it from SCM Press. Um, it is not yet available to pre-order in the uh us and canada and elsewhere um but uh will be um uh, certainly will be from the 31st of july when it comes out and um, possibly before then um if you want up to the date uh up to date uh updates on that you can always um follow me on twitter and i will make sure to post links as soon as i have them cool we'll, we'll uh, include your twitter and all of that great stuff in the show notes and definitely also post the link to uh the big the big fund for all of you at the university of winchester Thanks so much. And thanks for having me on. It's been really fun. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you give us a dollar of your of your hard-earned money, uh, you can join our great Discord channel and also uh, get access to our Behind the Paywall podcast called The Lock-In, where we do some silly stuff and read current events and read the Reddit, the, the Christianity subreddit. It's all... It's fun, I would say. <laughs> As the producer of this, it's good. It's fun, and uh, we did accidentally stumble on our own sort of internal angelology. I feel like, except that we uh, inadvertently turn human beings into angels. There's a whole, there's a whole lore behind it. It'll take you a while to catch up, but don't worry, you'll you'll get there. And maybe you never will, and that'll be fine too. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next time. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. 
So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have.